I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There's an inexplicable uh, light or something that it comes from Montreal that on, on one hand can be very beautiful and very seductive, but can also be kind of infuriating. <laughs> Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Rufus Wainwright you just heard. He is our guest today. He's really a part of the folk, pop, royal family of North America. I mean, his, his mom and his aunt were the McGarrigal sisters. He lost his mom 10 years ago. He's now also the father of a daughter that he had with Leonard Cohen's daughter, Lorca. So their daughter, Viva. It's just like the closest we have to like rock royalty, I feel, in It's Montreal. like the musical Royal Tenenbaums, honestly. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. He also has a new album coming out. I mean, because life will continue. It's called Unfollow the Rules. It will come out in the summer. We got to listen to it. It's great. Loved it. Getting the chance to finally talk to him was really exciting. More of that conversation later. This is our last episode of season two. What a crazy time to be wrapping up the show. And I mean, the these... world is a finale. Yeah, in a way. But I don't <laughs> I don't think it's a finale, but it's, it's a season finale. It's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger <laughs> for sure. We are recording this April 1st. Um, we are about three weeks into lockdown, social isolation, whatever you want to call it here in Canada. Of course, due to the global pandemic. For you right now, like in this last week, what has sort of emerged as the hardest thing to deal with in the everyday or the easiest thing? What has surprised you? Um, I think one really powerful spiritual tool in general is acceptance. And it doesn't mean to accept everything, things that are unjust, things that are make no sense, that are illogic. Like I, I think we need to rally up for social justice. But in a way, I've accepted that we are dealing with this the best we can like collectively i am dealing with this the best i can strangely i've been more productive because of this really yeah i've been able to write a bit more so to me it's like the sense of new normal is kind of sinking in while really bracing myself for what's to come what's to come what is here being grateful weirdly for a roof and food yeah. and but it's it's definitely challenging what about you? I don't know. I'm just like, <laughs> it's so up and down for me. You know, like there are moments where I'm dancing in my apartment and just like last night I was dancing to Whitney Houston, I'm Every Woman. And I was just of course, feeling it. Of course. But then 30 minutes later, I was just like crying. You know, like I think the hardest part for me has been thinking about my grandmother and like, what it means for our elderly population, there will be great loss in all of this. And I think the reality of the losses, and it's not just the people, but also the places and the 
businesses, the small businesses that we care about is very overwhelming. And I think there's more and more reality creeping in for me. And also what has changed is that Montreal has become so far, so from what we know on April 1st, the city in Canada that's the most affected. So we're not in America, but we're still in the city that's, you know, where there are the most cases and right. the province where there are a lot of cases. Um, and I agree with you. The part that's really getting to me is to imagine the people who will get the virus will not make it. And the part that's totally heartbreaking is to know that these people won't be able to see their loved ones to say goodbye. Yeah. How do we grieve right now? It's a it's a big question. And I think, you know, as hard as the questions are, like, it's sort of good to start asking yourself those questions now so that you're a little bit prepared. But it's very hard to be prepared for anything in this moment because everything is changing day to day so fast. To me, there's still this feeling that like I felt something was coming up. There was just something about the way we live our lives and the way I live my life that's that was just not sustainable. So in a way, I can't say I'm surprised. And that's the part that's so weird about this is I can't say I'm surprised about any of this. That's very interesting. At the beginning of the year, I had no vision for this year. Like, oh. usually at the beginning of every year, right. I have a vision. <laughs> <laughs> like Celine, it's what the power mean, of the dream. The power of the dream. Okay, so you So manifest, every year there's a manifest. dream. Every year right. there's, a, there's a dream. It's not always super conscious. It's not always necessarily thought out in specifics. But there's a sense of what's to come. This year, at the beginning of the new year... I really genuinely had no sense of what was to come at all. Like I couldn't feel anything coming. It just felt right. like this year was like a void. And it turns out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> Everything has just come to like such a sudden stop. And I know for me, it's just made me question like, what is the meaning? What is the purpose of what I'm doing? Just the small yeah. questions. Just the small. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because like over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading about how the AIDS epidemic had been unfolding in New York City in the 80s and how and and all over the world and and how that really impacted the queer community and you know i think there are similarities there are differences i think one big difference is that at the time people could physically still get together to do activism yeah. which is something now that you know like we we have to uh, isolate distance this is what makes this so unique yeah. in times of war in times of great challenges we get together yeah. whether that's even just for dinner or like entertaining each other last week you suggested that we call people yes i wanted to talk to sarah shulman she is a novelist playwright memoirist aids historian she was an activist a part of act up in the 80s and 90s she's actually publishing a history of act up next year so she was really at the center of the aids epidemic Hello. Hi, Sarah. This is Thomas. Hi. How are you? I'm doing okay. Do you live in Chicago now? No, I was just here visiting my girlfriend, and then suddenly everything happened, and I was afraid to get back on the plane. But I'm lucky to not be in New York right now. It's very, very difficult there. How do you personally react to, to all of this, like the shelter in place, what's going on down in New York? I mean, the, you know, the problem here is Trump. And we have no nationally coordinated response. So everything is completely chaotic, and it's all state by state, city by city. And so it looks like large numbers of people are going to suffer and die because of the monstrous federal government. 
as people like you would know, like in times of crisis, you know, and Reagan took years to recognize AIDS and there's so much resistance to healthcare reform. So should we re even be surprised that it's a nightmare right now with this? Well, I mean, the federal government could be helpful. It's, you know, let me say that I resist the comparison to AIDS. I mean, there's an emotional comparison. But during the, the height of the AIDS crisis, which would be for us 1981 to 96, I guess, those are the 15 years of the mass death experience here, there was never a collective action. You know, there was never a state of emergency for the entire nation, even though the death rates were so high. Uh, to date, right now, 1,000 people have died in New York City, and at, by the end of the epicenter of the AIDS crisis, almost 100,000 people had died in New York City, and I'm sure that we will get to those numbers. But it was always uh, left to us to be our problem. So it was quite a different kind of political context. And, of course, this is the virus that doesn't discriminate, truly. And AIDS dis uh, affected people who were already discriminated against. Marginalized people will obviously still be affected more by this. Always. As we're seeing the collapse of the economy and people's housing is being threatened for those who already who had housing, we already had enormous housing crisis before this. But you know, at least in New York, what, what I'm what I'm hearing and seeing is that well-to-do people with very good private health care are dying because they can't get tested and they can't get into the hospital, and. Only 20% of people on ventilators in New York hospitals are coming out alive at this point. So, you know, being privileged in this moment is, still, is not saving anyone's life. You've been through so many fights and you've, you've lost friends and you consider yourself kind of used to loss and grieving? You know, I noticed that in my generation the AIDS generation, we acted very differently when our elderly parents died, for example. You know, I think it was something that was less of a shock, and the death of a very old person for many people was experienced as less of a tragedy, you know, certainly a loss to be grieved, but not like watching a 23-year-old die because of government indifference. I mean, the, the frontline AIDS generations who made things better for every subsequent generation have a very unique perspective on death, on government, and on collectivity that perhaps hasn't been fully articulated. What is your perspective on death? I think that I uh, understand it. I, don't, I honestly think I'm not afraid of it. But, you know, we'll see when the time comes. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've approached the AIDS crisis through, like, so many lenses, through, you know, theater, personal, like, memoirs, essays, this act of history, fiction, great books like Gentrification of the Mind and Rad Bohemia. Um, how do pandemics affect queer bodies and the centers of queer life? What have you learned that can be useful right now? Well, you know, one of the greatest historical forces in queer life is familial homophobia. It's very, very significant. And it's been grossly under-examined. 
This is why people leave their hometowns and why they leave their countries. And so when you have an emergency like this, and if, you don't, if you're not connected to people who identify with you and are willing to share their resources, then you're much more vulnerable. And that's why we see, you know, queer kids overrepresented in the homeless population. And so in an event like this where so many people have lost their jobs and there really is no help from the feds, people are dependent on their friends and families to get them through. And if you don't have that kind of family support, then you're a lot more vulnerable. Do you think that in a way for people who are already marginalized by you know, homelessness or drug use, like this is a crisis, but their life was already a crisis. It's just another one. This is already, this is almost like it's more of a crisis for the middle class and the people who can't keep going. Well, I mean, America was already in total crisis for everyone, you know, before this happened. I mean, we have no health care anyway. You know, in New York City, where there's a lot of construction for luxury towers, every time a scaffold is built around a construction site, a homeless encampment pops up underneath it. So, and in terms of public education, I'm a professor in the city university. I mean, we haven't had paper for years. Now we're supposed to teach online, and we're finding that students don't have computers. So there's all, you know, there's been so many states of crisis in American life already, and of course this underlines everything. I mean, we'll never go back to what we had before, and that was true about Trump himself. As soon as he was elected, it was clear we were never going to return to the neoliberal norm that had preceded him. But we have to get rid of him to be able to get to find out where we are going. And he's been in your life for so long, like he was a character in... Or he inspired a character in People in Trouble, I read. That's right. He was a character in People in Trouble. Well, because New Yorkers always hated the Trumps, because it was well known that they, they wouldn't rent to black people. So, you know, they were always local villains. But, yeah, Americans are just don't get it in this very, very big way. We're in some kind of weird cult, a cult of the personality. And what's the best thing that we can do for each other right now? I say call people. You know, first of all, if you're still mad at somebody for some petty thing or you know that it was partially your fault and you can never take responsibility for it, just call them now, even if it's been 20 years. And just ask them how they're doing, for God's sakes. Unblock everyone you've blocked <laughs> on your phone and on Facebook. Who have you been calling? I have a list of friends who I know are alone right now, and I call them every three or four days, and, you know, just trying to let people know that they're cared for and that their humanity is recognized, and, you know, we don't know how long this is going to last. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for following. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Sarah Shulman. Sarah is the author of Conflict is Not Abuse, published by Arsenal Pulp Press. Thomas talked to her on April 1st. It's hard to look forward right now because everything is so unknown and everything is changing day to day. But, you know, as we are in our last episode this season, I feel like we've covered so much ground on this show. Like, we've (laughs) talked about... Everything. Sex, death, body image issues, family, Elton John, shopping addictions. (laughs) I'm assuming you're not still shopping right now. 
Please tell me you're not online shopping. I'm right online now. shopping a lot. You yeah. are? Yeah. What are you buying? Oh God. Are we going there? Yeah. Okay. So I'm shocked by this. <laughs> I'm shocked. So having a healthy relationship with shopping, food, and sex at the same time in my life has never happened. Like there's always one problematic relationship. So right now I'm social distancing, so I'm not really having sex. Yeah. So that's out. Um Food, I mean, of course I'll binge on food, but, like, there's so much, like, spiritual comfort than, like, you know, eating a whole cake will bring you. Right. So I guess it leaves shopping. and So shopping has been where you're putting all of your anxieties right now? Yeah, kind of. It's, it's What are you buying? What could you possibly need right now? Or uh, even want? Because for me... Cute shorts, I will cute say. Cute shorts. <laughs> Did you not get the memo that summer is not happening? <laughs> I I bought four pairs of slide sandals. You know, these like jockey sandals? Four? four pairs. Yeah. All on sale. There are great deals out there at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> the economy is crashing. And they're sending out great deals in my inbox. So you I, are... <laughs> I know. And work is is scarce also. I should really be, be keeping careful. my money. I know, I know. It's a problem. You know, I won't pretend that like I've figured everything right. in the season because I didn't. Right. You know, I spoke earlier in the season about, like, throwing myself back into the dating world. And obviously that's been shut down. Um, <laughs> like, in that sense, I've kind of reverted back to my sort of walls I can talk to these guys that I know I'm never going to meet, you know? So in a way, I've sort of reverted. Um, but I think what I'm starting to realize is that I'm not as much of a lone wolf as I thought I was. I have a lot of experience living on my own. I've been doing it for 10 years. But I am nervous about what being in this isolated state will do to me for a prolonged amount of time. Like, I really need people. I miss my grandma. I miss seeing my mom. I've been really reminiscing a lot about my childhood and the way that I was just always around people. When I Like, when I was a kid, I was never alone, you know? Really? Yeah. I know you're an only child. Yeah. I was so, always alone. Yeah. But then somewhere along the way, I became really alone. I guess when I moved out, you know, um, to a certain extent, like I was isolating before we were all forced to isolate, right. you know, like I would do my work, you know, and that was really my going out was like my mm -hmm. work. I really would just like come home and sort of like shut the world out. And now that I'm being forced to do that, it's like the opposite. Like I'm just craving to be around people like I want to go out and dance yeah I can just picture you like breaking into like a musical theater number on your street yeah honestly it's not <laughs> and I never want to go clubbing you know and like that's something that I sacrificed too was like a nightlife because I thought that I was getting that from being a performer but I wasn't because it was still my work like I wasn't going out and now it's like all I want to do do you think you'll genuinely adapt your habits when this is all over I think I'm going to be very changed. I really do. Like, I'm not going to miss an opportunity to be with people. I'm not going to be that person who 
always stays at home. I'm not going to be that person who cancels plans. I will save that clip and play it, it for you. <laughs> because I, I'm serious. Like in our first season, when we spoke to Jerry Saltz, the art critic, he told us that like, you know, artists need to be with other artists. Like artists need to be out at night. We're vampires. We need to be together. Our last episode of this season, we couldn't end this without talking to one of the most iconic Montrealers, Rufus, Rufus Wainwright. Wainwright. <laughs> He's had such a formidable journey being, you know, a wild child, abusing and using all sorts of substances, and then, you know, always sticking to his gift. Like he has a phenomenal voice, a phenomenal talent for writing music. He's also an opera composer. A Judy Garland aficionado. <laughs> I feel like for so many Montrealers, whether we're familiar with his work or not, he's sort of this touchstone. Like for me, he's always been this kind of mystery. And I think if you check out his Instagram, you'll pick up on that Royal Tenenbaum vibe. I mean, the videos are Rufus in his living room. Rufus is in a robe, kind of disheveled. It's fabulous. I love he calls it the robe recitals. Hi, it's Rufus, and uh, this is a new installment, or a new era, I should say, of the robe recitals, um, because obviously uh, I'm at home a lot more in my robe these days, as uh, I hope you are all able to be in your robe. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm we spoke good. to Rufus on the phone. He was home in L.A. What makes a good robe? Well, I mean, I have, uh, you know, I've had a very interesting career and and I've been able to travel the world. And I think always, certainly, you know, stealing a robe from a fancy hotel is is the best way to, to kind of, you know, be guaranteed something of a luxurious quality. And then there's also, you know, nobody quite makes a robe like the Japanese, so. Fabulous. Well, we've been yeah. watching your, your quarantines and they're, so soothing and they've become this really lovely daily ritual for those of us who are following you and it's technically not a quarantine but the other day you posted a video of yourself singing Celine Dion's Ziggy and wishing yeah. her a happy birthday Ziggy Ziggy is a song that means a lot to Thomas over here. So we're kind of curious about your relationship to that song. And Celine herself, you seem to really love her. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up with her, of course, uh, being, you know, from Montreal. And I remember her In a Colombe Passion Voyage, which was kind of her first hit, I guess, when the, when the Pope came to Quebec, uh, John Paul II. So, so that, and I used to sing that song as well in school and and I was about you know I don't know maybe around six or seven and uh, and I used to sing it and people told me that I sang it better than Celine <laughs> which, oh wow uh, which I took to being you know a reality like everybody knew that I, I didn't know that you had to you know make a record and be on the radio and I was like, oh, yeah, well, apparently I'm better than Celine, which, which was an example of my early confidence, uh, <laughs> shall we say. And then, 
And I met her once years later when I, we were at the Chunos. I've admired her for years as, as a, a serious force. And also a seriously strange force at times. As oh, well. absolutely. <laughs> She's kooky. Um, I mean, one thing when we watch the live videos that you're making is we see your voice is in such good shape. Like, I feel it's yeah. aging really well, actually. Can you can you hear that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I think there's two things. One is that, uh, you know, certainly being at home now and, and sleeping in <laughs> and being with my lovely husband, Jorn, uh, who's from Germany and and really kind of adores being at home in general. So I'm I'm very fortunate, so I'm well taken care of. But also I have to say, you know, over the years, um, I've really worked hard to improve my voice, you know, especially after the Judy Garland shows I did uh, years ago where where I had to kind of uh, uh, examine my methods and work on my pronunciation and on my breathing and sort of set off this attention that I had to place. And then that, I think, also coupled with the fact that I write operas and therefore, you know, take time off from singing and listen to other singers and learn from them. It's, it's, been, it's all been very good for my voice. Not drinking also helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for <A> sure. <laughs> Being at home is kind of a theme on the new album. I mean, Peaceful Afternoon, right? You wrote that about spending time with your husband at home. Yeah. But it's almost like just based on the song titles, like Peaceful Afternoon or even Trouble in Paradise, the first single, it's like you knew there was a storm brewing. <laughs> like we, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you something very bizarre. This is um, a theme that's always existed in my career where, I don't know, there's several albums I've written that oddly kind of compare much more with the period that they're released in than when they were written. I mean, you know, Poses is a great example for me where, you know, when I wrote that song, initially I'd written it about somebody else. I wrote it about some young twink <laughs> who was, you know, kind of on drugs and I was kind of obsessed with when I was, you know, in my 20s. And uh, and I kind of wrote wrote that song about him. And then, lo and behold, when I released the piece and then, you know, realized that I myself was was in trouble uh, with drugs, that the song was about me. And there's, and there's this kind of strange clairvoyance at times that reflects uh, in my work. But this de album definitely exhibits that uh, phenomenon. I mean, there's literal trouble in paradise, for sure. Yeah, trouble in paradise, <laughs> uh, early morning madness. You know, that's something now that I think everybody is, is experiencing on a fundamental level. You know, I've been waking up often at four or five in the morning, you know, just with this gripping fear, you know, and, uh, but then I, you know, then the day sets in and you just got to move on. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. One thing that I love related to the project is actually the video for the lead single, Trouble in Paradise. The video starts off with you in drag, and then we see you sort of being stripped away of that drag, and we see you grow a beard and become 
you know, your latest incarnation. Um, the drag you did in the video in a bob wig and these big sunglasses, I have to ask because she's my namesake. Was that a nod to Anna Winter? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, very much so. I mean, that song was technically written with her in mind. Really? Yeah, well, many years ago, I've been very good friends for years with Victor and Rolf, who are these fantastic uh, Dutch designers. But many years ago, we, we thought of doing a project together about the fashion world, and, and I suggested that, of course, Anna Winter should be one of the characters. And I, I wrote the song Trouble in Paradise with, with that in mind. She was sort of like a Cruella de Vil. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, because then Victor and Rolf, after a while, they're like, do we really have to put Anna Winter in this? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of course, you know. She's like the perfect musical character. And they were like, we don't want to upset her. <laughs> and, and, and we actually didn't do the musical because of that. Because wow. They didn't want to. But I've always been so much fascinated by these very hard, very cutting people who who just appear that way initially, but, but really deep down are incredibly human and incredibly, um, I wouldn't say sad necessarily but a bit but very emotional you know mm. well uh, she is a scorpio and, and, and. yes there you go there you go <laughs> i was going round from the town to the country then going back round from the country back in the album's press release i'll quickly read it it says that with Unfollow the Rules, Rufus leaves behind the angst, demon, drug, and debauchery-filled musical places of his past youth, the Baroque splendor and giving rise to a mature voice reflecting on life as a husband, father, and sensitive citizen of the world. Yes. You've described those days of substance abuse and anonymous sex as gay hell. Did you ever think that you would allow yourself the kind of love that you've found with your husband? Yeah, well, I mean, I the way that I translate it for myself is... Humans are not comprised of one being. You know, we have we have different periods in our lives, and and uh, we we like a tree, <laughs> you know, develop branches, and 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 we could become more solid. And at this point, I have I have a, a wonderful husband. I have a, a beautiful daughter. And, but that being said, you know, I still see that little scraggly branch <laughs> occasionally <laughs> dangling from uh, <laughs> near the ground. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I love that period of my life. If I was to say that, you know, I totally was immune to, you know, my previous romantic dalliances, it would be kind of lethal <laughs> yeah. uh, in the sense that I would just, uh, I'd be fooling myself. So it's like, it's, it's a constant juggle. I will say that with with substance and stuff, you know, and with alcohol, I mean, I I definitely, if that is in the mix, it's very volatile for me. That tree will, <laughs> that tree gets pretty, you know, the, the lumberjack comes in at that point. <laughs> I absolutely relate. I'm also at this point sober eight years, so to hear, oh great, to hear this and to you know, I don't have a husband. I don't know if I want a husband, but. It's so important for for guys like me to see what you've made of your life after this gay hell that you describe. I'm uh, curious. Yes, I'm yes. curious about your relationship with uh, Elton, because he's had a similar trajectory, and I know your friends. And yeah. do you sometimes like talk to him and pinch yourself, being like, "What have we? How <laughs> how are we still here with husbands yeah. and children?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, Elton, I see him 
Very rarely. We're both so busy. But every time I do, we do kind of pinch ourselves, actually. (laughs) Individually. (laughs) I don't pinch him. uh, uh, But but there was a moment where we kind of stare at each other and we're like, wow, isn't this amazing that we're still alive? You know, that we're having this wonderful time. I think where that started out for me as as a theme is many years ago, and this is back when I was drinking and going kind of crazy, and I met him, and, and he knew my father, and, and I was with my dad, and, and we, we, we did a song together at a show, and he just kind of looked at my dad, and it was like, isn't this amazing? <laughs> this isn't happening right now, and, uh, and that we're all here, and that we're all still singing. Well, I love that, obviously, your career has always been a sort of family affair, and... Yeah. Thomas and I saw you performing in February here in Montreal. It was a show that was a tribute to your mother, Kate McGarrigal, legendary folk singer-songwriter. The show was just so much fun. (laughs) Like, it was you and, like, 10 members of your family. It was kind of chaotic and but like beautiful and I'm curious like coming from such a musical family where everyone is just you know this unbelievable level of talent did you always feel like it was okay to not be perfect and that you had room to (laughs) you know to what we saw on stage was so just in the moment but did you feel growing up that there was more of like a pressure to be perfect and as good as everyone around you it's an interesting dichotomy um, because on one hand it wasn't that it was okay to be imperfect or to make mistakes. It's that there was this appreciation of kind of, of truth and a, and a sense of um, sincerity, you know. My mother and aunt were totally against decorum or how can, uh, a theatrical device, you know, that is show business. They didn't like that at all. They were folk musicians. They wanted it to be real all the time. So that was very much imbued in in Martha and I uh, and our cousins. But that being said, they were incredibly, uh, especially my mother, she was a real disciplinarian. I mean, she really, you had to know the music, you know, you had to hit the right notes and stuff. So so she was very unforgiving also. (laughs) Um, So it was a weird kind of mix of both. But but yes, when we're together, the McGarrigal Wainwrights, there is this sort of, I wouldn't say it's a lax attitude, but it's there's a realness to it. Yeah, and a real joy. And yes. the whole time that I was watching it, I'm like, this should be a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, I know. Like, I just, idea. it would be fabulous. How are your aunts doing and your dad in this uh, social yeah, distancing yeah. moment? I mean, I mean, they're, you know, half of my family, the McGarrigal side and Martha, they're all in Montreal. I know Martha's doing amazing work there, singing up on her balcony. I live on the same street. I can literally see her balcony from my house. Yeah, yeah. So she's <laughs> singing a lot. And then, you know, my dad is, he's well. I mean, I have an aunt who has been, you know, fighting cancer. And I'm very worried about her. I mean, she seems okay now. But yeah, we're all bracing ourselves for um, some challenging times over the next couple of weeks. Has this moment of distancing, especially for a family that's so close, has it taught you anything new about your loved ones? Have you discovered just new parts of them or just new dimensions to your relationships with them? Well, um, I would say that the greatest kind of, gift of this in terms of, you know, new dimensions with family is is spending so much time with our daughter. I mean, we really, you know, she's not in school. 
and we really, you know, we're we're with her the whole day, you know, from morning till night, and it, it, it's challenging at times. There are moments when you're like, oh my god, I, you know, I give up. <laughs> I'm putting you up for adoption. No, uh, you know, but in general, it's been an incredible gift. What is her personality like? Oh, she's very big personality. Right. Her name is Viva. I mean, you can't have a small personality. Yeah, yeah. So she's, uh, you'll be hearing from her at some point. Don't worry. I mean, that reminds me of the song Want, where you, you know, sing that you really don't want to be John Lennon or Lennon Cohen. You just want to be your dad with a sprinkling of your mother. And as a father yourself, like when you sing these songs, do you feel you have these same parenting traits that your parents had? Look, my father... God bless him. I mean, he worked all the time when I was growing up. He toured most of the year, and and I didn't get a chance to see him much because he had to make money, and uh, and he was more, I think he was just more driven, uh, certainly than my mother, um, in in terms of the touring thing, and and, and really depended on that lifestyle. So so I hardly saw him, uh, and we've been sort of making up for that ever since. That being said, you know, at this point, me being given the gift of spending so much time now with with my daughter, there's kind of a poetic justice to that. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, unless things go really south, which they could, for the moment anyways, I think my daughter will actually look upon this period as, as quite, um, you know, really, really fundamental. Rufus Wainwright, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Rufus Wainwright from his home in Los Angeles. On Follow the Rules comes out July 10th. And you can already watch the videos for the singles on YouTube, so you don't have to wait that long to enjoy. He is a joy to follow on Instagram at Rufus Wainwright, and that's where you can also watch his robe recitals. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? We talked about it last episode, but it's becoming even more clear to me how many of the things that I was obsessed with now carry very little meaning for me. Like what? What what were you obsessed with that no longer has meaning to you? Like Sex in the City. Um... (laughs) Uh, Jennifer Lopez and her relationships, you know, like the celebrity gossip. Right. I just can't care about. But in a weird way, I've sort of returned to what might have been my very first obsession as a kid, which is Alanis Morissette. And since I listened to Jagged Little Pill for the first time when I was eight or nine years old, like there's just this connection. It's, the anger in, uh, in You Ought to Know, you just felt it. I felt it. But I'm more drawn to the soft Alanis. You know, right. I love angry Alanis too, right. but I'm more drawn to the soft Alanis. And one song in particular that I've really gone back to lately is this song called That I Would Be Good, mm. which is on her second album, Supposed Former Infatuation Junkie. It's a song about healing perfectionism. Yeah, which is really hard. What are the lyrics again? I don't know if I can say them without like starting to break down so people can. I mean, it's the end. Um, no, I don't like I don't want to break down <laughs> again. I've, I've cried so much this season. That I would be good even if I did nothing. That's just like 
I can't even say that one line without like getting emotional because I think right now what's so hard is that we're so attached to the things that we have defined ourselves through. You know, like so many of us define ourselves through our work, through our relationship, through our money. And right now we're being stripped away of those things. We're being isolated. What have you been stripped away of that you feel is the most painful? I feel like I've been stripped away of my identity as a performer. You know, to me, it's not the same thing to be on a computer and entertain people digitally. It's just not the same. I mean, it, it is what it is and I'll use it, but it's not the same as being face to face with an audience. Those moments are so precious. I have to say I was always aware of how precious they were. Every time in the last seven years that I've gotten the chance to get up on stage, like I've always been. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I've always been so grateful because I never thought I'd get to do it. And I have to say, I'm not as attached to it as I thought I was. You know, I know a lot of people in our community right now, artists who our community has been hit so hard. And I know that people are really in so much pain and heartbreak at losing their work and losing that identity of a performer. But it's who we are innately, and whether think, we're on stage or not. Like, even in the years that I wasn't performing, I always thought of myself as a performer. That doesn't go away. And so for me, I feel I'm crying right now because I miss it so much. But it's okay. That's what Alanis' song is all about. Like, it's okay if we're nothing. It's okay if we're stripped away of our beauty and our money and the things that we've been taught to chase. Like, not necessarily the enjoyment in those things. And we spoke about this on our very first episode this season. It's just the danger is the attachment. And that's what we've been a culture of attachment and constantly finding ourselves in places where no matter how much we experience, no matter how much we acquire, it's never enough. So there is real power and there is real beauty and there is something very important about this moment in all of us confronting who we are when we're stripped away of it all. That I would be good if I got and stayed sick. I do, uh, as some listeners might know, I'm also a DJ. So I miss DJing. I miss being in bars and making people dance and dancing. And um, I would describe my DJing style as gay wedding. Yes. (laughs) And it's so great because you play all the hits. Um, Yeah, no filler. It's like no filler, which is my motto too. And it's like, I find DJs sometimes can be so pretentious and just trying to play what's cool, what's underground. But it's like, no, we just want the Backstreet Boys and the Spice Girls. So there's one song that I can play in every theme night. You can play that song at like a diva night. You can play that song at a cool indie pop night. You can play that song. uh, Anything that's a bit disco, it works. And it's Dancing on My Own by Robin. And I have to say, before all of this, I was fed up of the song. Everyone was always requesting it. And like the opening, I was like, ugh, like eye rolling. But, well, first of all, it's called Dancing on My Own, (laughs) you know, in terms of... Which we're all doing on Zoom. Yeah, it's social distancing perfection. Um, But beyond that, uh, the song will be celebrating 10 years in a few weeks. Can you believe it? I can't, because I still remember when it came out. 
spring of 2010. I was actually going through a breakup, and it's like the best breakup song. Yeah. I feel for people my age and younger, it's it's just such an iconic. It's our I will survive. Yeah, you know, it it's really like is. I will survive. So there's the sort of dancing, and even in social distancing, when we walk on the streets now, it's this like weird choreography of like oh, avoiding people, avoiding bodies. Um, but I also f- miss the sing-alongs. And this is a great, great sing-along song. When I saw Robin last year, she would stop singing to let the audience take over. So you have like 3,000 people together singing. I miss that. I miss being at a live show. I miss just like going insane singing at the top of my lungs. And as hard as it is, and it's super hard, and we're in the thick of it, and we don't know how long this is going to be. But we're going to get on the other side. And I promised myself that, you know, I would sing at the top of my lungs whatever song yes. would play. And I would, I, would, I would stop judging people for requesting this song because it's <laughs> like, you know what? There's a good reason for it. I miss dancing with people in a space. And it's something I really took for granted. Me too. And, and I, I never was – I wasn't doing it much at all like in the last few years. And now I'm just like aching for it. Yeah. Like aching. <laughs> Just singing and screaming and jumping and like hugging each other and like <laughs> twirling each other and throwing each other around the room. And it's gonna feel, it's gonna feel special when we get to do that again. The season might be over, but you can go back. We have 20 episodes this season, 15 episodes from our first season, and I'm just honestly so, so proud, and I think that there's so much for you to discover, especially now in these very trying times. Thanks to all the guests. Thanks to all of you for listening and connecting. The show has become a real chosen family with all of, of you guys, and also with Crystal. Our producer. Producer, right. editor, guardian angel. Yeah, love her so much, and everyone at CBC who's made this possible, we're so grateful, and on that note, we'll do our formal credits one last time. <laughs> chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Tran winter with Crystal Duhame, who also edits and mixes the show. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Norani is the executive producer. Big thanks to all of them, as well as Catherine Stockhausen, Phil Rochefort, everyone at the Phi Center, and really all the bookers and people who've helped us throughout the season. Check out our Obsessions column on Daily Extra. You can find that at dailyextra.com, dailyxtra.com. And if you haven't already, join our Facebook page. It is still alive and going. I will still be answering whatever comments, questions you have for us. Just search Chosen Family on Facebook. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Chosen Family CBC. You can follow us on Instagram personally. Mine is Tom LeBlanc X. And mine is at Trana Winter. Also, I'm just going to be shamelessly promotional for a moment. I have an album out. It is available digitally now on Bandcamp. So you can find that at tranawinter.bandcamp.com. It's only seven Canadian dollars. So get on it. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. You can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.